So we, as I said, we're in a series called What is the Church? And um, in our series so far, I want to just remind us of, of where we've been every week, try to do this a little bit to, uh, to catch us up and, and kind of because the series builds week upon week. So the first week we looked at what is the church and we talked about the story that starts in the very first chapter of the Bible, this story where God actually wants to partner with us in the world uh, in order to extend his grace and and to um, extend shalom into the world, his peace. And he continues to put his hand out to us as individuals and as groups of people, but we're really bad partners with him. But the good news is that God doesn't give up. Instead, he comes himself. And the person of Jesus, uh, he is the perfect partner that we were never able to be, but also he opens a door for partnership with us once again with God uh, in the form of of being part of his family. And so we talked about all the different invitations that that means uh, in order uh, or through Jesus that we have all these different invitations where God is putting out his hand to us. We also are invited into be, be part of a community. That's what it means to follow Jesus, that we're not encouraged to just go away, but we're encouraged to come into relationship with God, but also into relationship with one another. And I mentioned that we, a community of followers of Jesus, his people, the church, one of the first things we're encouraged to do when we look at the books of Acts is to learn to watch and wait. That we don't try to get ahead of God with our planning or ideas and invite him to come along with us, but rather we watch and wait what God at what God is doing in our midst. That his presence is here, that his presence is in the world, and we are invited to participate and partner and join with him in what he's doing. And then we're also encouraged uh, to, last week we looked at to, to do four things. To be a community of people that's devoted to learning that we learn what it means to follow Jesus, that we're invited to community, that's that word koinonia, to to fellowship, to being together. We're invited to be devoted to hospitality and then a community of people that practices the way of Jesus. And so that that is kind of the, the beginning of the vision of the church, but it brings up a bunch of questions for us, probably many for you. Um, And the first is how do we get along with those who are different than us? And how can we work together with those, not just get along, but actually work together, be part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ? And what should our focuses be when we gather together? What should we actually do? What is our context? How can we be the church today? You know, the Bible talks about a church 2,000 years ago in a very different context. What does it mean to follow Jesus as a community today? And then how do we respond to the various difficulties that we face in our world? And so those are the, the questions that we'll look at together in this series at the rest of the time that we have together. Um, and so today we're going to look at the first one, which is how can we actually get along with one another? How, do, how are we able to follow Jesus? And so let's look at the vision. We're going to look at the passage again that we, we started with last week in Acts 2. So verse 42, if you're following along with the Bible, but the passages will also be up on the screen. Um, sorry, I'm just letting someone in from the waiting room. Okay, so this is the vision of the church. So I'm going to read the passage again for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. 
So again, this is a beautiful passage. Uh, if you've ever heard preaching on the church, it's a high likelihood that someone has talked about this passage. And when you read the Bible, it's always really important to distinguish between what is something that's an ideal, what are we being called to as an as a ideal and a hope, and then what is reality. Because sometimes those things are different. For example, Israel is called to be this kind of a people and uh, a, a perfect people, basically. But often the reality doesn't meet that ideal. But this is one of the few times in the Bible where we see people uh, meeting the ideal. So the reality of what their community looks like is the ideal of what it looks like to be part of the people of God in the Bible. You notice that by all the different, the ways that Luke, the writer of this passage, uh, uses all these uh, all-encompassing terms. So he says all the believers were together. They held all things in common or everyone was filled with awe. There's this amazing all-encompassing uh, all nature of what's happening here. The people are just amazingly united. And this is the vision of what it means to be the church. Scott McKnight, uh, in his book, The Fellowship of Difference, which I would recommend to any of you, it's a great book in what it means to be the church. He's, he writes this, the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. So different people coming together to share uh, in one kind of family. And as we remember last week, uh, that, that's what's happening in the book of Acts. There's all these people who have just been baptized, 3,000 of them, and they're joining a couple, maybe a couple hundred of Jesus' followers. And so there are all these different people that are coming together to make a new kind of family. That's, that's what God's family is all about. McKnight continues, when this happens, when we are able to be a, a fellowship of unlikes and difference united in Jesus, when that happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. I love that sentence. The church, the church is God's show and tell for the world. Um, Bonhoeffer says that the church is the final apologetic, how we get along, how we learn to love one another, all these different people coming together from different places, united in Jesus. This is the apologetic for the world. This is God's show and tell. And I just love that picture. And I think that that's what Acts 2 is pointing to, all these different people coming together, united by the gospel. And it seems to me that this is the heart of what the gospel accomplishes in a group of people. It's to bring peace and unity among the people of God. Now, as we'll see in our, in our study in the book of Acts, sometimes uh, we won't have peace with people outside the family of God. But inside, this is what Jesus has accomplished through the gospel. In Ephesians, it says he's broken down the walls of hostility. So we have peace and oneness with God. We are united with God and not his enemies anymore. But it also brings peace and unity with each other. And most of the New Testament books have this as their focus. Paul's letters often start with a reminder of what the gospel is. And then they move on to so that we, you, we remember what the gospel is so that we can learn to get along with each other despite our differences. So that's the vision of what the Bible shares for the people of God, for the church. Now, the question is, why isn't this vision a reality? And I want to list four problems that I, I think happen not only in the Bible, but also in our communities today. Things that stop us from having this vision become a reality. The first is that we're sinful. So we do things that destroy the peace that Jesus has purchased for us. We act in a way opposite from God. If repentance is turning back towards God from whatever direction we're going and whatever other things we're worshiping, sin is walking back away from God 
and turning our, it's repenting from God. It's turning the other direction and starting to chase something else. And that destroys the peace and the unity that Jesus has given us. And we see this in the New Testament. Um, in, in the book of Acts, for example, there's this group of people, these two people, Ananias and Sapphira. So they're part of this first community of, of Jesus followers. And they say that they're going to give their money. They're going to give uh, sell a bunch of land and give the money to the church. Like we saw in Acts 2, that they were selling things so that, that, that would, they would be equal among each other. But instead, they keep the money back for themselves. And this uh, breaks up the church. It brings a lot of fear on people when they do this because the Holy Spirit points it out. And this is maybe one thing to know in the Bible, that there's no such thing as private sin in the Bible, even though it seems like they're doing something quite private. Uh, this, it's, it's written in the book of Acts like this affects everybody. And so their sin uh, causes some fractures in the community. There's another character named Simon the Magician uh, in the book of Acts, and he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. He tries to use what God is doing in the people and get it for himself in order to use it for his own profit. And this, again, causes friction within the community. And we see this all over the New Testament letters, uh, examples of how sin um, breaks the community. In 1 Corinthians, for example, one of the things that's the, one of the reasons that letter is written is because one of the members of the community is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And um, so we think we have problems now, but they also had problems back in the early church and sin is breaking up that community or in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, uh, Peter, who we see uh, front and center in the book of Acts won't eat with the non-Jewish believers and his sin is breaking the community. And in our church today, in the churches today, we also have this, our, our selfishness, our lying, our lust, our greed, our sloth, uh, all break this um, the, the pattern and the unity that we can have, the peace and the unity that we can have in Jesus. And again, I say that there's no private sin in the Bible. So sometimes we only think of sin as if I've sinned against somebody else in the church, but the Bible is pretty clear that there's any kind of sin in our lives, that it's going to break this web of community that we have within the family of God. So that's the first reason. And it might be the most obvious, but the second reason that we have um, uh, this vision of what we see in Acts 2 isn't a reality in our church or in other churches is because we're weak. And this means we're at different stages in our apprenticeship to Jesus, and this causes conflict. One of the most clear places this is written about in the Bible is in the book of Romans. Paul writes towards the end of Romans. It follows his pattern, like I said, where he writes about his theology, that, that we are united in Jesus, that he's broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile specifically. And then later on in the book, he says that, that weaknesses can also cause problems. In that community, there's some people who are only going to eat vegetables. They don't want to eat meat, not because they're vegans, but because they're scared about uh, the meat being sacrificed to idols. Or there's other people who are, un, they don't want to drink alcohol. They, they really want to abstain from that. And Paul's saying these people are just at a, at a lesser stage in their apprenticeship to Jesus. And that can cause a lot of friction. And that's what Paul's addressing in the book of Romans. And we'll talk about how uh, he addresses that a little bit later. But the point right here is that weaknesses, differences in us, in our, in our stage of following Jesus can cause conflict. The third is that we're unique. So we're sinful we're weak, but also we're unique. We have differences in us. Now, again, in this, in this passage, we need to remember that, that they're adding a whole bunch, thousands of new followers into Jesus, Jesus' family. So not only do those followers bring their sinfulness, not only do they bring their weaknesses, they're going to be at a different stage in apprentice, but they also have uniquenesses. And this is one of the big um, things that the New Testament addresses. 
is a difference from moving from a Jewish community into a multicultural community. And oftentimes what happens is is a group of Jewish believers and they're adding non-Jewish believers into their community. There's a British scholar named Peter Oakes, and he says that if Paul's churches had 30 people in them, here would be a general makeup of who they were. So there'd be a craft worker in whose home they met, along with his wife and his children and a couple male slaves and some female slaves and a dependent relative. Then they might have some tenants of that house with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in rented rooms. Then they might have some family members of a householder who himself does not participate in the house church and a couple slaves whose owner don't, owners don't attend the church. Then some freed slaves who don't participate in the church. They're just there uh, to have some housing. They might have a couple homeless people and then a few migrant workers renting small rooms in the home. And so we could just see in the diversity of this group of people that there would be lots of differences of opinion and uniquenesses. And oftentimes in the, in the New Testament, we overlook the uniquenesses because they seem so foreign to us. The things that cause the uniquenesses that cause um, uh, people to not be able to get along together. Things like circumcision, you know, it's not something that we're, you know, checking at the front door of our church or eating food sacrificed to idols. I doubt that any of us were worried about that this week. But the same problem can still drive us away from each other, that we come from unique cultures, different perspectives, languages, ages, genders. And so I am going to look at something very differently than a woman from Nigeria or from someone who is from rural uh, Atlanta, Canada, or a first century Jew. We're all going to have different cultures and perspectives um, that uh, are, could cause um, friction and not allow the vision that we see in Um, Acts 2 to become a reality. And as a sidebar, this is why distinguishing between these different levels is so important. Oftentimes, our starting point for someone who disagrees with us is like, oh, you don't agree with me? You must be harboring sin in your life, or you're obviously wrong. But I think the invitation of the Bible is to actually start with uniqueness, to say, maybe the reason we have some difference between us, maybe the reason we can't get along is because we have uniquenesses first. And then maybe after that to move to weaknesses, maybe we're at different stages in our apprenticeship with Jesus. So you're looking at it from as a, as a very mature apprentice, and I'm looking at it as a very new apprentice of Jesus. And that's, what's causing this friction. And then finally to move to sin. I think oftentimes our first reaction, especially in the church is to put sin at the front, but we should start in the other direction, uniqueness, then weakness, then sin. So those are the three issues or three of the reasons why the vision doesn't become a reality. But there's also one more, and uh, it's a new problem that the early church didn't have, but we do, and that's that we have options. So remember the the context of Acts 2 that we talked about last week. It's 3,000 new followers of Jesus that are joining this small group of Jesus followers, and together they're becoming the early church. Now, these 3,000 new followers of Jesus can't be like, you know what, I, I don't really like Peter's preaching. I heard him, and it was great for me, but he's pretty judgy. And so I'm going to go instead to attend Barnabas's church. You know, the worship is better there. Or I'm going to go to this new house church that opened up around the corner. Because after these 3,000 people got baptized, you know, this place isn't the same. I don't have as tight of relationships. No, they weren't able to do that because in the early church, it was just often a city church. There was no choice in where you met and, and who you met. You just were part of the church because it was often also a persecuted group of people. So they were meeting underground. But we today have all sorts of different options. 
And so it's easier to divide amongst our differences than it was in the early church. And I'm convinced when we do this, we miss a chance for witness and we miss a chance for the gospel to take shape both in, in our community and in our lives. Again, here's what Scott McKnight says. Sunday morning has become an exercise in cultural and spiritual segregation. And this has a colossally important impact on the Christian life itself. The reality is that each of our churches has created a Christian culture and a Christian life for likes and sames and similarities and identicals, which is the opposite of what he's advocating for and what I think the Bible is advocating for, difference, a fellowship of difference. Instead of powering God's grand social experiment, we've cut up God's plan into segregated groups with the incredibly aggravating and God dishonoring result that most of us are invisible to one another. And that's all because we have the option today of choosing. So those are four reasons that I think um, the vision doesn't become a reality in our lives, but also in our communities. So what can we do? You might say, oh boy, like significantly uh, uh, frustrated already or not, uh, I'm not, not encouraged. What, what are some solutions that we can do? And I want to end with giving us four solutions for learning how to get along with one another. And, and further than that, that we might actually have reached the vision or walk towards the vision of being like the early church and showcasing God's grace within our community. So what can we do? So the first thing, the first solution is to learn to value something new, to learn to value something new. You know, I think when we read Acts 2, we feel a lot of the warm fuzzies and we're like, yeah, I just really wish that I was part of a church like that. But if we look closely, I doubt we'd actually feel that way. Let's just take a look at two verses, verse 44 and 45. It says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So the early church was actively liquidating their assets in order to care for the community and care for others. So the idea here is like, yeah, sell your house or sell your car or give up your RRSPs. Don't save more, but give it away. And I think that's what most of us want. We want to be a part of a community like that. But if we're honest, we want to be a part of community of other people who do that kind of stuff. I don't think of liquidating my own asset, my own assets. I think about you liquidating your assets in order to help me because I presume that I'm on the lower end of the spectrum. And so I think that's how we come to this. Even though we read the passage, we don't look at it for ourselves. So the question is, how do we become those people? How do we become the people who could do something like that if God asked us to? And it's really about learning to value something different. Value something, for example, over those assets that we have. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans when he's talking about how do we deal with a, a person who's weaker, a weaker brother, a person earlier in their apprenticeship to Jesus. Here's what he writes in Romans 15. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. So we don't have the full context of what's happening here, but the key phrase here is not to please ourselves. That's what we have to stop, looking to please ourselves. And our world every day encourages us to do this. You do you, express whatever is inside. And so this is just a natural inclination for us, as I talked about last week, to think of me over we. So how do we learn to change? Here's what Paul continues in verse two and three. Each one of us is instead to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And here's the key phrase, for even Christ did not please himself. 
So if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then we're invited to look at him and take our cues from him and to see, to value him, to learn that he did not come to please himself, but he came out of obedience to God and a love for us. You know, there's an old Scottish minister uh, named Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote this really um, like a classic sermon. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the basic idea was this. You can't stop loving something until you find something new to love. An old or a new affection expels the old one. We can't just get rid of old things that we love. And so if we take that uh, in this passage, what he's basically saying is you won't stop looking to please yourself. You won't stop loving yourself, considering my needs and my rights and my theological preferences or my political stance. That's just not going to stop. You won't stop looking to please yourself until you find someone else to please a new love, the expulsive power of a new affection. And so what Paul is encouraging us to do is to learn to value something new, take our value off of ourselves, our rights, our needs, our wants, our assets, and learn to put them on someone else in the person of Jesus. And to follow Jesus means at the very heart of it, that we are changed people, that I worship something new now. And it's not me, it's him. And if Jesus' life didn't revolve around pleasing himself, then I shouldn't expect that my life does either. That shouldn't be the fundamental storyline or baseline of my life. Following Jesus means I'm taking on the person of Jesus into my life and I'm learning to appreciate and honor and enjoy the differences that we have in this community and value other people over myself, as Paul says, and also Jesus over myself. And so in, in these moments when we feel the pull and the, and the anxiety of difference, that it's pulling us away from the ideal, we need to learn and ask ourselves to value something new. The second thing that we can do is to, to learn to distinguish between spiritual friends and spiritual family. Learn to distinguish between spiritual friends and spiritual family. Now, spiritual friendships are super important. Um, I preached on this last uh, last year in our Rule of Life series, and I do think it's it's really important uh, for us to think and talk about. And if you remember from back from that series, uh, C.S. Lewis defines spiritual friendship as that moment when two people come together and they say, or it starts when they say, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's the basis of friendship. And I do think we have to have spiritual friendships people that we uh, really get along with well, people that are natural friends, and we share a faith with them. And that's part of our friendship. That's a really important and beautiful thing. But not everyone in God's family will be your spiritual friend. Instead, we're your spiritual family. And you don't get to choose family. I totally forgot. I'm just remembering this as I read it right now, that usually at this point, I put a picture of the awkward family photo up here. Like we don't get to choose our family. I was talking to someone uh, this week and they were just talking about their extended family. And they're like, yeah, you know, there's some real weirdos in my extended family. And that's the same idea that we have when we come to God's family. We don't get to choose them. So there's going to be people that are different than us. And the invitation into God's family is the invitation for anyone who wants to follow. It's a beautiful invitation. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 3. For those of you who are baptized into Jesus, any of us who are, are doing what they did in Acts 2, repent and follow Jesus and be baptized, we have been clothed with Christ. And therefore, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. So we've got both of these things happening at the same time. All these different people from different walks of life that are coming in. 
But the barriers, the things that, that um, pulled us apart, the things that polarized us outside of the family of God are now not supposed to in, in the family of God. If we're baptized into Jesus, he's at the center. But that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be a best friend. And I, this is something I remind myself of often, that Jesus' family is not the people that I've handpicked. So it's not going to look the way that I would have set it up. And that's a good thing because it's not my family, it's God's family. And so I think it's really important for me and for all of us not to put the pressure on everybody to be our best friend in the family of God. That's just an unrealistic expectation. And if everybody is our best friend, then we probably just got a really homogeneous group of people. And uh, I should instead expect that there are going to be people in God's family who would make me feel uncomfortable and frustrate me and are going to look at the world differently than me because it's God's family and people, not people that I've handpicked. So if we're going to look like Jesus and not just like any other organized group of people, we should have a lot of differences and even differences that make us feel uncomfortable. And I just want to say, One quick, again, sidebar, if you feel like you're different in our church family, for whatever reason, maybe it's socially or economically, or you don't have kids, uh, there will be a very natural draw for you to go somewhere else where there are more people like you. But I want to just encourage you to stick around if you would, because you're going to actually bring something into our church family that that those of us who are maybe more homogeneous for whatever reason can't. You're going to reflect God in ways that we can't. And so I just encourage you to stay. We'll talk more about this next week when we talk about the different gifts that we bring into God's family. But I just want to encourage you to stay. If you are one of those people who does feel different, we actually need you in the family of God. You could teach us what it means to be spiritual family. Okay, two more quickly. So we learn to value something new. We need to learn to distinguish between spiritual friends and spiritual family. Great to have spiritual friends, but bad expectation that everybody in the spiritual family is also going to be a spiritual friend. And third, we need to learn how to practice watching and waiting and being open to God and to learning. We practice watching and waiting for God. This is going back a couple sermons and just putting it in another context of what it means to be the church that we practice watching and waiting for God. And I want to remind us again of, of Peter. So it was his sermon, if you remember, that brought all these new people into the family of God. And Peter is a Jewish guy, so he doesn't eat a pork. And he's been in Jewish community his whole life. And one of the things uh, they were encouraged to is not associate with people outside of that community. But later on in the book of Acts, God gives him this wild vision. He's practicing his faith, so he's, he's um, praying on the rooftop. And in the, in the vision, God brings all these unclean animals, including pigs. And he says, like, don't go and eat them, kill and eat them. And Peter says, no way, I'm not going to eat them. I've never ate these kind of animals before. It's super uncomfortable for me. And God gives him the vision again and says, hey, don't call anything that I've made unpure. And then Jesus, or sorry, Peter meets these non-Jewish people and they want to follow Jesus. People who are very different than him but want to become united in Jesus. And Peter, his whole life has been taught to emphasize the differences between him and this group of people, this new group of followers of Jesus. They don't have the same language. To Peter, they're gross. They eat bacon and it make them super uncomfortable. But what Peter does is a, is a great model for us. Instead of looking at the differences, he looks for the grace of God. And so again, he watches and he waits for God to speak to him. And he watches and waits for what the spirit is doing in the other folks' lives. Here's what the passage says in Acts 10. 
It says the circumcised believers who had come with Peter. So again, circumcision was one of these boundary markers for the Jewish people. All these Jewish believers in Jesus came with Peter to to meet these uncircumcised people, the people who were outside of their normal family, the people who made them uncomfortable. And it says they came with Peter and were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentile. They're watching and waiting for what God was doing. They heard them speak in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. And Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have just received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And sometimes I wonder if that shouldn't be read like, hey, can anyone withhold water? Like Peter might just be hoping, can someone keep these weirdos out of our community? But I don't think that's how he's actually saying it. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, when I see the move of God, when I watch and I wait, not for what my desires are, or what my opinions are, or the things that I want, or I need, or the things that make me uncomfortable. But instead, when I look for what God is doing in this, in this person, I see him at work. And so I invite these people into the family. And so verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen already, that's the invitation into the family of God and into the, ch- excuse me, into the church. And so this is the starting point for Peter. And I think it, it's, it's an encouraging picture for us of the starting point as well. That God, you're at work in the world, and it's not always going to fit in my paradigm. And so this is Peter's new baseline for life. He goes from being put off by new believers to advocating for them. And that's what happens in the rest of the book of Acts. Peter goes to Jerusalem to uh, all these these Jewish leaders, and he actually advocates for these people for for, uh, then his whole life, these folks he's been um, discouraged to hang out with. And, and to emphasize the differences. And he ends up advocating for them because he knows the vision of what God is doing in the world. And he knows it's not his job to be comfortable, but to be humble and to be open because the family of God is bigger than my preferences and my story and my mind. And so Peter humbles himself and he watches and waits for the spirit at work within people. Now, I need to say something very quick but something very specific to our community here. And I knew I was going to have to say this. We've talked about it as elders, um, but I wasn't sure exactly where to fit in. So here it is. Um, But it's about how I am going to lead this church as long as I'm here. And I'm saying this because there's been a bit of a change in emphasis from our last pastor to myself. And I'm not at all speaking against him. I just want to clarify what the change has been. And it builds off what I talked about last week. So I just want to quickly remind you of what that was in case you weren't there or in case you just blacked out for that section. We talked about bounded set groups and centered set groups. And so here's a picture of what they are. A bounded set group emphasizes the, that red ring, the differences between us, whether you're in and out, usually by agreeing with some different things. A centered set asks the question of which direction are you headed? So in a community of followers of Jesus, are you headed towards or away from Jesus? Now, one of the emphases of our church in the past has been a theological bounded set. So the idea is that we want to get everybody to agree with a specific theological stance. And this could have been on everything. There was actually a theological statement about coffee on our website at one point in time. And so it was, it was the reinforcing these boundary, this boundary mentality of clarifying who's in and who's out by what you believe. And specifically that we wanted you to believe with one theological perspective. So the goal was theological homogeneity, that everyone was on the same page theologically. And this is a bounded set. So it looked something like this. Let's imagine the goal was to make everybody a theological square. Go ahead to the next slide, Joel. 
And I, for the most part, am a theological square. Um, so here you can see it. But the, if you were a triangle or a diamond or, you know, God forbid, you're a plus sign, the goal was to try to get you to at least agree with squaredness and to pull you inside the square in this direction. And, and there's really some great positives to that. But here's what I found happened. Go to the next uh, slide, Joel. A triangle church would start up down the road, a new one. And all the people who said that they were squares, they would go, they would be like, actually, we were never really squares. We were really triangles. And so we're going to go to the triangle church. Or more recently, what's happened is that a more square church has started up. And they're like, hey, we're more square than you are square. And so people who are squares would go and they'd say things like, hey, I'm pretty sure reality's lost the gospel and they're heading towards being a diamond. So I'm going to go to this church because they're very clear about their squaredness. Now, how I want to lead is slightly different. I believe, along with what was shared at the beginning, that the vision of God's family is that actually we're a fellowship of difference. And so that means I'm actually not interested in trying to get everybody to become a theological square. It's great to have theological squares here. And generally speaking, I'm a theological square. So I appreciate other theological squares. But I actually hope that we have theological triangles and circles and diamonds, and even by God's grace, you know, parallelograms and plus signs. So it looks more like this picture here. That's what I hope for our church. And we're inviting everybody to follow Jesus and to bring your perspective to the party. And that we move by doing that, we move towards Jesus and towards one another, even in our differences. And I don't do that. I don't say this because I think it's easier or that I think everyone is right. I definitely don't think either of those things. It's much easier to just put a big square around our church and say, this is who we are. This is what you need to be. And I wish you all agreed with me because then you'd all be right. And just think about how great that would be. What a wonderful feeling that would be for you. I'm joking in case you can't tell uh, on Zoom. But I, I, I don't say it because it's easier or because I think everybody is right and all of our perspectives are, are perfect. But I would say this because I believe it's what the vision of the church is in the Bible, that we're actually a fellowship of difference and that the gospel of Jesus is not meant to make us the same, but to allow for our uniquenesses and our weaknesses. And that by coming together, it will also, by God's grace, allow us to see our sin more clearly and easily. And I think that by doing this, it actually makes for a bigger Jesus. I don't know if you, if you saw this, but I made the cross slightly bigger in this picture because I think that's what happens when we allow people to be different. We don't allow those differences to pull us apart, but instead we move towards one another and we move towards Jesus together. Because I think it forces us to act like we see Peter acting in the book of Acts. It forces us to be people who are characterized not by a spirit of bravado and a spirit of being right, but by a spirit of humility, which is to say, I know what I know, but I don't know everything. And by God's grace, there are people who see things very differently than me. And so in a spirit of humility, engaging and watching and waiting for the spirit of God that's on the move. That's what I'm going to do when I, when I come to people with difference. And that's what I think humility looks like. Rather than having a first stance of I am right and you're wrong, it's having the stance that I might be wrong. And it's asking the question, hey, where is the spirit of God at work within you and with your perspective? And praying, learning to pray and say, God, give me eyes to see where you're at work within this person. And when we do this and we devote ourselves to the things we talked about last week, to being a community of learning, 
We can come to each other to the scriptures as our guide towards Jesus. And we learn the scriptures and we learn together and we learn from each other. Let me learn alongside of you, but also from you. We, at, we devote ourselves to being together, that this is not about me and my preferences because the family of God is bigger. It's bigger than me. It's we over me. So I move towards you, even though you might be different, because that's the vision of koinonia, that we be hospitable to one another, that we're going to make space for one another, not for sin in our community and not necessarily as best friends, but as family members together, that we make space for one another and show hospitality and that we practice the way of Jesus together. And I think when we do these things, it helps us to do the last, the last point, the last solution that we have, which is to keep the main thing, the main thing. You know, it says after Peter's vision that he was deeply perplexed when God told him to, to go cross a boundary to people that ate foods that he was very uncomfortable with people. Peter said it was deeply perplexed. This was folks who were very different than him. It made him super uncomfortable. So what Peter did is he prays more. And then he goes and talks to some friends and then he walks out in faith. And then in verse 34, it says this beautiful sentence. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. You might say, how did Peter not know that God doesn't show favoritism? He's a church leader. He gave this amazing sermon about how God doesn't show favoritism, but it's his experience of encountering difference that helps him to truly understand God and his heart. And ask himself, what is it that you actually believe? You've got all these cultural preferences. You've got all these things that you believe and you know, what is it at the core that you believe? And are you willing to put that into practice? And when we come into conversation with people who are different than us, it does the same thing. When we encounter difference in one another, we allow ourselves to, and we allow ourselves to move together rather than away. It forces us to keep the main things, the main things, just like it did for Peter. And in our community, I, this is what I hope they are. That, that they're Jesus, we keep him at the middle, at the center, that we're moving towards him, that we keep Jesus' story central to us, God's word, that we come in and around and, and our differences, we come in and around God's story and we read and we watch for what God is doing and we submit to what his story is and that we learn to follow Jesus, that we're, our arrows is pointing in his direction. And I think this is really a significant, this this. Um, is a significant lesson, or these are significant lessons, not only for our church, but for the church, that we learn to walk into these solutions. Because Christians have done exactly the same thing, I think, as everybody else in the world. We've chosen to divide along lines of perspective and personality and culture. And I read this week that there are 45,000 different Christian denominations in the world, that we are much more used to splitting apart and away from one another to building our boxes and drawing people who are more like us than different than us. But what if instead we practice these solutions? What if instead we continue to have differences, but we allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to be bigger than them? What if we allowed the peace of Jesus, the peace that he offers to be bigger than our algorithms? What if we allowed the mission of Jesus to take precedence over our politics? And what if we allowed for the grace of Jesus to be bigger than our desire to be right? What if you allowed those things to take root in your heart this week and our community? What might we look like? Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for um, your invitation to peace and to unity that you have brought through Jesus. So as we grab hold of that, help us to be mindful that we don't just grab hold of it for ourselves. It's not about my salvation, but it's about this community of people 
like Scott McKnight says, that you want to do show and tell with in the world. And if that's true, then we need to learn how to follow you together and move ahead within our differences. So would you give us wisdom of where are the areas that people and, our, and me and all of us are walking in sin? And what are the areas instead where we're just different, we're unique, or maybe we're weak, we're just at a different stage in our apprenticeship to you. Could you give us wisdom to know that in our community as we try to move together? And I pray that you would help us to practice each one of these things. When we feel the draw to be pulled apart and to assert our own preferences over um, other people's preferences, would you instead teach us how to be this different type of a community? And we do this, um, so teach us what it means to follow you. Teach us what it means to have Jesus at the center over and above our own preferences. So I ask that this would become more and more true of me, that it would become more and more true of each one of us, and that it would be more true of our family here too, not only inside, but as we work with other churches to make your name known. And as we do so, would, would you truly show, show and tell the world what it looks like to follow a Jesus that doesn't polarize people, but instead draws them together? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.